Are you troubled by strange noises in the night? Do you experience feelings of dread in your basement or attic? Have you or any of your family ever seen a spook, specter, or ghost? If the answer is yes, then don't wait another minute. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. I got some pretty cool stuff cooking up over here if you want to just turn your head. Um, I improved beam accuracy by adding a plasma shield to the RF discharge chamber. I have cryo cooler to reduce helium boil off. And to dub it all up, we got a freaking Faraday cage. Welcome to Radio Free Gozaria, hosted by Jay Smith. Welcome to Radio Free Gozaria. I am your host, Jay Smith, and I have an amazing panel of guests with me today to discuss the social ramifications of the new <laughs> Ghostbusters film. And I can't believe I'm actually putting those concepts together. Ghostbusters <laughs> is typically a comedy horror film, and you don't have to dig too deep into it, but this new movie somehow made a made a very strong statement on a lot of things while being a very entertaining summer blockbuster. So before we get into all of that deepness, I want to introduce to you our panel, beginning with the the wonderful and exciting Keith R.A. DeCandido. Uh, hi, I'm uh, apparently Keith R.A. DeCandido, and I'm apparently wonderful and exciting, which is a surprise to me. Uh, I've written um, a bunch of books about a bunch of things, uh, about more than 50 novels at this point, as well as some short stories and comic books and blog entries and limericks and all sorts of other stuff. Um, I've done, uh, among other things, uh, media tie-in fiction based on things like Star Trek and Stargate and World of Warcraft and Supernatural and the X-Files and other stuff, as well as my own original fiction in both the fantasy and science fiction fields. Uh, I've been re-watching various Star Trek, Stargate, and Batman TV shows for Toy.com for the last five years and probably some other things, too, that I can't remember due to the severe lack of sleep. Uh, I've also worked with our esteemed host on the Parsec Award-winning audio drama HG World. So, that's me. Ding! And also with us is Scott Johnson. Hi, Scott. Hi, how's it going? Uh, my name is Scott Johnson. I write horror novels and true ghost guides. I wrote the guide to true ghosts in Austin, Texas, and in San Antonio, Texas, and in Augusta, Georgia. I've also written a host of other novels, book reviews, film reviews, blogs, Blah, 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 blah. I'm a. I'm also a paranormal investigator, and you can find out more about me at creepylittlebastard.com. Okay, you have the best URL ever. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and the, the <clears throat> scintillating tones of Mr. Dave Robison. Ah, uh, yes, the buttery man voice. Uh, I'm Dave Robison. I'm the founder and host of the Roundtable podcast, uh, managing editor of Vex Mosaic, the magazine of speculative thought, uh, uh, and also, uh, let's see, content manager for Under Media Group and vice president of the Ed Greenwood Group. I am, yes, a professional dilettante. I haven't actually done anything. I just sort of lurk at the edges and, and comment extensively. Thank you, Dave. And the other half of the panel... I have Christy Kolsky. Is it Christy Kolsky Ingram officially? Yes, it is officially. Okay. But I usually just drop off the marriage part of it and keep with the Kolsky. Head on it. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the program, Christy. Well, thank you. Um, Well, I am a self-proclaimed riot girl. 
military veteran and a mother. Very important. Um, I lecture on history at Stark State College, and I'm currently working on my novel. Um, and I'm a big geek, and I'm a big fan of the franchise, but especially this movie. Fantastic. Virginia Nelson, Verge, how are you? I'm great. Um, my name is Virginia Nelson, and I am an artist, an editor, and a single mom of three great kids, but I am probably best known for my writing. Um, I've got uh, books ranging from contemporary romance to paranormal romance to nonfiction, and I'm best known for my USA Today bestseller, The Penthouse Prince. Cool. And finally, Kathleen Taylor, K.W. Taylor, how are you? Hi, good. I'm great. Thank you. Um, I'm K.W. Taylor, or Kathleen, but I write as K.W. Taylor. Um, I've written over 50 short stories, um, an urban fantasy series called The Red Eye, and I just released a uh, science fiction novel called The Curiosity Killers from Dogstar Books. Um, I was also a lecturer of English and women's studies at Wright State um, for a number of years, and I'm currently pursuing a PhD in American Culture Studies, which includes things on film and uh, gender. Very cool. This this is definitely not a bro podcast. This is <laughs> we have a lot of intellectual weight here, and I'm hoping that we can dig a little bit deeper than a typical podcast. So thank you all for being here. Um, I'll just throw this first question out, and then we can we can go in whatever direction you want. Uh, what is it about this film? I mean, it just seemed like this movie was was destined to fail. It was destined to be just another reboot, uh, another piece of uh, expendable summer garbage. But it's not. It turned out to be some a fantastic piece of work. Why? Why is that? Anybody want to jump in? Well, I think I think part of the problem, you know, here is that is that the folks that expected it to fail uh, were mainly a group of. You you heard the refrain a lot of they're crapping on my childhood and that kind of thing. And honestly, if if a reboot of a movie with women in the lead craps on your childhood, you must have had a terrible childhood. <laughs> um, I feel like I feel like the people that were that thought it was destined to fail were the ones that were doing all of the whining and crying over them being women in the lead. True. They were getting girl cooties all over it. Yes, and we can't have that. Um, yeah, the the I mean the, the I think what, I'm, part of part of it is general annoyance that a certain segment of of um, particularly whiny people on the internet have with remakes. Um, and it's true, a lot of remakes are terrible. But then again, a lot of movies are terrible. The, the Sturgeon's Law applies pretty much to everything. That you know, ninety percent of everything is crap. Um, you know, and then again, these are the same people who thought that you know Battlestar Galactica was just the coolest thing ever. But again, on the third hand, those are the same ones who were bitching about Katie Sackhoff being cast as Starbucks. So you know, um, but at least some of it was that. I mean, as far as why it succeeded, it succeeded um, in part, at least, because you know it was a it was a good, funny movie. Ultimately. It's a comedy at which people went in, sat down, and laughed a lot, which is really the most important yardstick by which a comedy should be measured. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I think one thing that's important to note is all of the things that made the first film, and I will say the first film, not Ghostbusters 2, but that made the first film work so well, they retained. (laughs) You've got good writing. You've got a bunch of people who are veterans of Saturday Night Live. They did not change anything about the formula other than the gender 
of the main actors, although there are some differences. But honestly, the things that were good were all still there. Well, you know, and I, I must say that, you know, some of the reaction that came up over this film and it coming out, I there's an interesting psychology to geek um, think for some reason. I, I think particularly in the geek world, it seems like the, the reaction um, to having females being present. I mean, look at, you know, like Gamergate and all that sort of thing um, within the culture uh, seems to be a partly stigmatizing. And in film, there seems to have always been sort of a fear of females being able to hold the lead of any sort of film that was fantasy, sci-fi, or paranormal. I mean, look at Star Wars. They weren't sure, you know, whether or not um, she could hold the lead of that movie, the one that recently released. And I think the same goes here. I think there's a fear that women can't carry a storyline, although they clearly can. But we've had <laughs> some of these... It wasn't an issue with Force Awakens, God knows, but... I, she, she carried that movie. So... Sorry, go on. No, I'm sorry. The The thing that I am always stunned by is that in a post-Buffy the Vampire Slayer world, we're still surprised that a woman can be the lead of a supernaturally themed um, or genre project. Well said. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that it's surprising that she can be. I think it's surprising, in my opinion, that there have been, that there have been no producers up to this point that have had the insight or the spine as it were to put a woman in the lead in something like this i mean if buffy the vampire slayer taught us anything is that women kick ass okay and we knew that from the beginning i mean a lot of us knew that but i'd like i i think that it was particularly good of the producers of this to go on and say, yes, we are going to put women in the lead of it and we're not going to cast them as eye candy. I mean, look at how, look at how in this movie, the women are shown doing like normal human things. They actually eat, you know, Mm -hmm. and without making fat jokes. Yeah. There's no fat jokes. There's no, there's no, look at my hair. Oh my God. My hair is so wonderful. No, that's not how it works. These women are actually getting to work. They're doing what, we all actually do on a day-to-day basis. And I think that that was great from the producer's point of view. I I think it's important to note that that Hollywood, in general, does not lead. Hollywood follows. And I think it's very encouraging that we're seeing with the Star Wars franchise, not just The Force Awakens, but with Rogue One and with Ghostbusters and in several other franchises, that, that Hollywood is following... A, a wellspring, a groundswell of strong female voices speaking out in geek culture, in nerd culture, uh, to to advance this this movement. I think Ghostbusters, part of the reason of its of its success, Gadzooks, is the fact that they actually uh, uh, it's a demonstration that that this impetus is taking root in popular culture in the engine of popular culture that being hollywood for me it was really the 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 thing that made it successful for me was i thought the characters had a lot more depth and and substance and backstory than the original ghostbusters the original ghostbusters there were there was a a caricature quality to all of the characters but these people had relationships and friendships The, the the dynamic between uh uh emily and abby 
especially at the end when when Abby Emily, you know, spoiler, uh, uh, saves Abby. I won't say how. Uh, that that incident <laughs> did not happen in the original Ghostbusters. There was no moment of bonding in that regard, other than in a bro way. This had a much more substantive connection between all the characters. I don't know if that's a gender factor or a writing factor or a combination of both. I'll leave that for, for brighter minds to decide. But I think that's, that's more of a writing factor. I think the comparison to, to Buffy is, is sort of problematic in that television was sort of already there. Um, you know, it, you were just using the, the word Hollywood, and the thing is, TV has had, especially, I'm talking specifically of, of genre TV versus genre movies, uh, genre TV was already there 25 years ago. You know, um, the 90s in particular was a great golden age, not just Buffy the Vampire, so you also had Xena, you had um, Aaron Sun, you had Karen Reese, you had all these kick-ass in, in uh, genre television. It's genre films that have been slow to catch up. Yes, um, well, you know, sure. I mean, we what had we a- had before that was yeah. Red Sonja, which was terrible. We had, you know, we had other we- characters that relied on, you know, perfect hair and big boobs and didn't show real women in real situations. Well, I think that's the crux of it here is what we're, we're looking at. Who's the audience? Is, is, is Hollywood, to use the general term, is, is Hollywood looking at the audience being only male? And therefore, if there's a woman on the screen, she has to be showing boobs or whatnot. Um, yeah. But this is this film, and that's why I think this film was so monumental. It, it didn't. It, it actually acknowledged that there would be a female audience that would be coming, a female geek culture as well. That was a great celebration. It's an interesting well, we point. Have, we have women who are over 35 in every single major role in this film. They're not doing the thing of showing something that the men in the audience can latch onto. I mean, these are still, I would argue, attractive women, but they are not traditionally portrayed as cheesecake. The only eye candy is a man in this movie. So, but we also had Wonder Woman on television long before we have this new movie coming out next year. So this has been going on a long time. Is it that women are perceived as not watching films, but they're seen to watch television primarily so also i'm sorry so what is it i want to say that they they, speaking uh as a heterosexual male um i'm perfectly okay with holtzman as um i don't want to say a sex symbol as such but i was watching her and i was turned on i mean she was just a spectacular character who was to my mind, at least, incredibly sexy. Also, because she was smart, and because, well, she was weird, and and and, and because she basically had that one moment where she basically killed all the ghosts, um, and that but was she, and that was awesome. Uh, you yeah. know, and, and at no point did she show her boobs. At no point did she, you know, shove her ass in the air. At no point, you know, was there massive cleavage involved. And at no point was she trying to, you know, do it in service of a man. She was just trying to save the day, just like any other hero. Well, then that's interesting of like, why is Holtzman being seen as the sex symbol when she, yeah, she's not showing any sort of cleavage or, or whatever. She's not being exploited physically at all. So does that prove that we can have sex symbols who don't get exploited on film of, of any gender? Well, I think, yes, we can. But I think part of the reason why Holtzman comes off as so attractive <laughs> to both genders is because intelligence is sexy. And she is by far one of the smartest people in that entire movie. The character is. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Well, you know what else is interesting to me about Holtzman is that she, um, I think in some ways, her sexuality in of all the female characters that we have is, uh, is, is kind of very much blended in with her personality. And it kind of creates yes. this idea of sexuality as normative. Mm-hmm. Imagine right. that, not something that's a separate entity. Um, so I, I think that that on top of, yes, I agree, the, the intelligence, the capability she has, and all of that comes together in a very sexy package. Well, and, and I also think things- that it's interesting. I also think it's interesting that after the movie came out, the director did come out and say, yes, she's gay. But during the movie, whereas in the past we've had characters that say, you know, we have characters that they make a big deal out of this being the gay character. Yeah. But in this mm-hmm. case, it was, okay, maybe she is, maybe she isn't. It's not important. Okay. You know, And I think that it, that's actually a step in the right direction because it shouldn't yes. be a defining you know, factor of the character. The yeah. Gay. No, it didn't matter. Yeah. And yet the very first scene we see her and she is so obviously checking uh, Abby out. I mean, or Aaron. Aaron out. Sorry. Well, uh, she really really obviously <laughs> checking Aaron out, which was great. You know. Well, there was that but moment. Actually, see that as her checking her out in a sexual way. I saw her checking her out as a okay. What are you going to be? What are you going to bring to this? The, the yeah. time yeah. moment for me was. I think it's. When when Abby was possessed and she came out of the bathroom that first moment and Holzman is right there, there's an instant where where Holtzman is ready to go in for the kiss. There's just that connection between those two. <laughs> where she's just like, I don't know what you're doing, Abby, but I like it. And she's ready to strike. So that was the now, moment where I went, yeah, okay, yeah. The, somebody's pining for someone in this group. Well, but can I can I mention one thing about as much as I love this film and I love the portrayal of Holtzman and I love the reaction to her and I love the reaction to everything, but... You know, we in the original film had several of the characters have romantic relationships or at least attempt to have romantic relationships um, and implied romantic relationships in Ghostbusters 2. We do not get any relationships of that nature for this group. And while that's maybe seen as good that women have more going for them than just their romances, but could it also be seen as in order to make them be taken seriously, we have to sort of neuter them a little bit see i like that strength though i like the fact that you know there wasn't a romance element needed for the story to carry for us to actually care about these characters they didn't require someone else to complete them they yes. themselves were complete and strong and i think that was really important because you just don't see that in any movie whether female or male-led a lot you see you don't generally see characters that don't require any romance whatsoever to continue to keep you invested in their outcomes and I would sure. imagine that that the fans, if, if a if a relationship was a part of it, I could see fan backlash being, oh my god, they couldn't have a female character without putting a relationship in it. So I can see the writers being very careful about how yeah. they proceed well, with presenting those characters. You know, and and I gotta, you know, I, I think this is a really good angle, Kathleen, to take a look at it as well, because I mean, already the writers are saying, you know, the hell with this, we're gonna have a female cast. So you know, what what's up, are, are they feeling like they're they're hemmed in for some reason? And I, I think you have a good eye, you know, a, a good perspective here as to well, maybe we should be asking that question. What about having relationships for a female on the screen um, can be detrimental to the film for some reason in our in our social awareness? And I wonder if it has to do with we're, we're so used to um, a model of relationship where we have a, a dominant. Uh, 
member of that relationship, and mm-hmm. usually it's the guy. So I wonder if maybe it, it was taken out for that reason. Well, um, you, you realize it's perfectly possible that Patty has a husband back home that we just haven't seen yet? That's yes. something that I was thinking about. Patty In fact, that's, that's, that's my headcanon until I'm told otherwise, is that, you know. <laughs> you know, and I have this belief in, in personally that, that you don't really know a person until you know about their personal life in terms of their family and that, you know, they're, they're, if they're married or if they have a significant other and if, if they have children and things like that. Because those things are huge parts of, of who we are. What sure. are you mentioning? Sure. The, the lack of mentioning it is an important thing to know. Well, they, we we did have some relationship insofar as Aaron and Abby's friendship, you know, was yes. sort of a mirror of the typical bromance. Like, for instance, um, Sherlock Holmes and uh, Ben Watson have a similar bromance to the fact that, you know, this whole Abby thing and the fact that they were broke up and had to get back together and rebuild that friendship. So there were elements of, you know, relationships, but just not the typical romantic relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And I think with Aaron's story arc, too, you have the there is this hint of sexism that permeates some higher education circles where she's had to sacrifice a lot in her life to get to her professorship and whatever. And she loses her tenure based on this side thing that seems kind of sketchy to her department chair who also comments on her outfits and things. So, you know, she may have sacrificed quite a bit of that in in service to her career. I also said as much. She said she had to kiss so much ass to try to get that tenure in the first place and then didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the Dean of that school was portrayed as a smarmy bastard to begin with for that exact reason. Yes. Uh, yes. I think that was a comment on how that works in the, in the world of academia. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. I felt like he definitely stood for kind of social standards and patriarchy, so to speak. So (laughs) I thought he was a good shoe in for that. I like to th- I like to think that he stood for a crumbling dichotomy. Uh, I mean a, a a crumbling social standard. Yeah. Because if anything this movie if anything that we've seen in this movie it told us that you know that particular gender stereotype that particular norm is dying and rightfully so. It should. Yeah. She still doesn't get the she still doesn't get the position though. No, no but she goes on to something even better. Right in, in the context was, of the was, movie, it was, it was the same thing. That was that's one thing that carried over from the first movie, was that you know they were when 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 cut free from the restraints of academia, uh, they thrived, which was you know true of the original and true of these guys. Yeah, I mean you're going to suffer in academia if you have outsider ideas, or if yeah. you are a member of an outsider or marginalized group. Either way, so yeah, the original guys suffered from similar things, but they weren't also facing sexism and racism and, and all right. that. The original guys didn't have the problem of, well, you don't wear the right clothes. Sure. But, you know, they did have the problem of, you're all crazy. Mm-hmm. So yes. there was that. I've been in the private sector. They expect results. Yes. It is fascinating, though, that, you know, that our societal norms and our social mores have changed that much in such a short relative period of time that, you know, what was socially acceptable for Venkman's behavior back then is now seen as creepy. Well, absolutely. I mean, back then, everybody thought he was hilarious, and that was women and men alike thought it was hilarious. And now we look back at it and we cringe. We all cringe because, I mean, honestly, it's very rapey. It's it's Mm -hmm. what we are now taught is incredibly unacceptable. Um, And I don't think that a character like Peter Venkman could actually play 
in theaters today without the filmmaker being crucified over it. Or actually being some consequences to what he does, you know, or having him like, I mean, honestly, a lot of what happens, what Venkman does in the, in the first film would be ameliorated by him not actually getting the girl at the end, not being rewarded for that behavior. You know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, she would not. I mean, Dana, Dana of 2016 would not put up with any of that. And also, the the scene in the original where Ray gets a little frisky with a ghost. I mean, we we are thankfully uh, not treated to that. In the, in the that Interesting been... bit of trivia. You know, the ghost that was in that scene is actually his wife. Oh man, I'm glad oh, that is super creepy. That's actually Danny Aykroyd's wife. <laughs> it was Donna Dixon, really? Donna yeah, that was Donna Dixon. Wow. <laughs> See, oh, Scott, you... I did not know that. I'm sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, Scott had said previously in another chat that, you know, the death of Murray in this movie was almost a, you know, death of that character because of the fact it's no longer socially acceptable, that it perhaps was, you know, hearkening back to that. And I thought that was a really interesting you know, thought. Well, and I <laughs> also think that it's interesting because Bill Murray, Bill Murray, uh, I don't know if you know this, Ghostbusters 3 was supposed to come out for a long time, and Bill Murray refused to do it unless they killed his character. And um, so I saw this as not only the death of that character, but I also saw this as Bill, as them throwing Bill Murray a, okay, we'll kill you off. <laughs> <laughs> See, I was never 100% convinced he was killed watching the movie. I mean, he was thrown out the window, yes, but there are only two flights up. He could have easily survived that with, like, a broken back or something. Uh, I'm I don't know. The symbolism was still Yeah, absolutely. Yes, the symbolism was still intact either way. Uh, well, I did pick also- up a copy of the, the new book, the, the adapt- not the adaptation, but the printing of Ghosts of Our Past. And there is a the new edition, they call it. There is a quote, a, a blurb from... His character in the in the front saying, "These women convinced me that ghosts exist." So he did. Sur- oh. Apparently, he, he did survive. Oh, he was oh, just wow. thrown from a window. If he had been a, okay. if he had died, the body still would have been there, like for the subsequent scene yeah. when the cops were all there and whatnot. Because they, it takes much longer to remove a body. Whereas if he was just injured, he would have been whisked to the hospital instantly. Oh. Sorry, You're applying logic to <laughs> film time, wow. Keith. What are you doing? That's madness, man. <laughs> Well, here we were talking Madness. about gender roles in a Ghostbusters movie, so we've already passed that threshold. <laughs> we crossed that line. I, I yeah. to add, we've in, got in, learned in academics the... talking about Ghostbusters. This is awesome. Uh, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. It, to to <laughs> layer into uh, Kathleen's observation about the lack of relationships in the female characters and uh, uh, KP's uh, response, I, I think we're very much... Uh, this, this is a transitional movie. I think as a culture, especially in geek culture... Uh, we are in transition now. Uh, we are we are shifting over as uh, new voices take point in defining who comprises geek and nerd culture. Who has I don't want to say the voice or the authority, but certainly who 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 can participate? Who can add to this conversation? That's changing, and and I saw this and that lack of relationship. Kathleen, that you had invoked mm-hmm. as an indication of being in that transition that that I think maybe for this first movie, we need the pendulum to swing uh, uh, a little heavily in the other direction to emphasize and enforce and, and affirm the strength of the characters that they can stand alone without the tropes that have defined them in the past. Uh, mm-hmm. So that as we move forward, we can then weave in more authenticity uh, and more depth in that context to the characters. 
That's interesting. Um, I I see other properties. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, d- I don't disagree with you. I think it's a shame that that's necessary. I guess, and it would well, have yeah. been ni- it would have been nice to have maybe just a little nod like an actual thing in the movie saying Holtzman has a girlfriend somewhere or Patty has a husband at home or something, but that they wouldn't really be interested in engaging. I mean, like my husband is not involved in my writing career other than as a cheerleader. It's perfectly okay in real life to have a male partner who is not threatened by, you know, your career or whatever, but that to actually assert that in a film seems like it's too scary for people to handle, you know? Mm, And that that just... Yeah. You know, it's just disappointing, I guess. But I mean, I hope that maybe that that will develop as the series continues. So, oh my gosh, could we could easily see Patty's family just show up the way Hawkeye's family showed up in Age of Ultron. So you know, it worked yeah. there. Yeah. So okay. that could also pull <laughs> out of narrative because this is a very tight film. For two hours, they they keep things rolling. So we didn't want to go off in one direction and start learning too much about anybody. And I, I think one of the things that I found that I've read on the internet about about this film is that the theme is platonic love that they wouldn't yeah. stray from that concept. Yes. And there's either the construct of platonic love or familial love that this is a family that has been healed and then extends into adding Patty Tolan. And once they're united and healed, they can actually go out and do what they need to do. Well, um, you know, under that theme, that's a really you. good point. Let's look at frozen. I mean, uh, frozen oh, yeah. exact same thing, but they did add a love interest in there for good or for bad. There's different, um, perspectives on that one, but um, you know, if, if it, it, it's clear we're we're going in that direction in terms of film, and that we're really remodeling, you know, these this idea of what it means to be a woman on screen, and that there can be these interpersonal relationships that do not include romantic ones. But yeah, again, um, I wonder if this is a, a phase thing that we have to do. That you know, in a, a change in general in society doesn't tend to happen overnight as much as we may want it to. It seems to, uh, you know, arguably could be dis- destabilizing as well. Mm-hmm. And it's been I a process. I mean, Frozen was not the first Disney animated film with a female lead to not have. I mean, Lilo and Stitch didn't have a romantic component to it at all, and that was one of their most successful animated movies. And yet, you know, um, it it it's a process. It's it's something, and, and you know, Hollywood mainstream Hollywood is still ultimately very conservative, and it's going to take them a while to to get over it. And they're going to, unfortunately, you know, pre-existing prejudices are almost always going to to fall back to that. But it's 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 a process. It, it, you're right. It's, it's a process, and it's something that, that we're seeing, you know, with, with stuff like Star Wars and Ghostbusters, you know, finally, so, something that already has the name recognition, so it, it was poised for at least a certain amount of success in the first place. This helps, you know. Well, I also think that it's interesting and, and a good thing that uh, the whole realm of geekdom is being challenged and being presented as, hey, look, there are female, there are women out there who are comic book nerds just like there are guys out there. You know, yes. there are women out there that are into sci-fi and horror and into all of that, just like the guys that are out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's nothing in the world that says that this that this has to be a male-dominated field, you know. And honestly, some of the voices of the women that are out there are phenomenal. They really yeah. are. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, we're more you look, and you look at talks. you look at independent studios, and I by independent I don't mean you know, I'm looking at people like let's say Netflix with Jessica Jones, you know, or the new, the new movies that are coming out that are going to be out here uh, 
pretty soon Wonder Woman is coming out. All of these movies that have that have women in very strong roles, women that do not necessarily need anyone to complete their lives. They are complete and whole human. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fascinating, and I think it's amazing. I think it's wonderful. I think, too, the new um, Supergirl series does some interesting things with they let her have relationships and things. But, like, she's involved with Jimmy Olsen, who has no powers and is still portrayed as, um, you know, a bit a bit nerdy. And he doesn't care to kind of impose his um, activity on her superheroism or whatever. So, Well, I think one of my favorite scenes in... Um whichever in one of the Iron Man movies was where they immediately upon seeing the character of the Black Widow, they immediately treated her like eye candy and for their efforts, they got their asses handed to them. I think that was such an amazing scene. And it was a scene where everybody went, Oh wait, we're not going with eye candy. Now we're going with someone who really can take the guys down. Which is one of the things I love about the Black Widow character in particular is that she takes that, she takes the assumption that she's helpless or that she's a sex symbol and turns it on people. I mean, we saw that at the beginning of the Avengers movie too, where she, you know, sets herself up as helpless. And you know, and again, when she uh, both both in the early interrogation and her, her scene with Loki, where she she turns those expectations on their ass um, and uses it to, to as a weapon. She still exists as 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 the boobs for the film, quite frankly. Yeah. I don't think it's, I don't think we can take away what the audience is, you know? Um, and I yeah. think that's still what's being thought about. Um, and, and I agree. I love all these characters too. And I'm not trying to say that these aren't characters that shouldn't be respected for some of the great, um, things they've done for film. But, um, I, I this is where with Ghostbusters, I don't feel like for the first time that like, Oh, okay. There's the one for the, for the guys of the audience. I'm like, no, these girls are out there for me. And yeah. that was the exciting part. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I, yeah, I love my daughter to grow up to be as strong as the Ghostbusters. They they really are yeah. identifiable <laughs> characters, but somebody you can also look up to. Yeah, exactly. They're very they're very relatable. They're not too um, you know. There's nothing that's going to make a little girl feel bad about herself, other than to be inspired. Yeah. She's not yeah. going to feel like I, this is some unattainable ideal that I can't reach. And I yeah, also and we- hope that I also hope that when the, that if a little girl watches this movie and they see someone that behaves in the manner, let's say, of the dean of that school did, that she will be that she'll be able to take the lesson learned here and say that's unacceptable, and I don't have to put up with that kind of crap. Yeah, <laughs> I think Can what I, I loved about Holtzman. I'm sorry. Um, no, no, but- go ahead. I think what I loved about Holtzman was the fact that she proved, too, and this is really rare to see in any film, she was socially awkward. Um, She was extremely intelligent, yes, and extremely brilliant, but she wasn't comfortable and confident in those social situations, even amongst her closest friends. So I like the fact that we got a character like that, that not only was she still awkward and clearly uncomfortable, she still was able to be part of something and be a respected part of something and be loved and cared for by the people around her. And I thought that was awesome because you just don't see that. And a lot of people do really struggle, I know I do, with being (laughs) uncomfortable in social circumstances. So I like the fact that they showed her, you know, yeah, you can have the awkwardness, you can be uncomfortable, but you can really still be part of something cool and change the world. Oh, that's a good point. I, I want to start bringing this here because we only have a few minutes left. But is Ghostbusters the one franchise that allowed this all of this to be accomplished? Could they have replicated this kind of depth with, say, making an all female Star Trek or another popular franchise? Could they do a female uh, expendable uh, successfully? 
No, I, I think the thing about Ghostbusters is it was a two-film thing where they struggled for so long to try to get a third film made. Um, the people who own the rights are very open-minded, um, and and it's so old of a property that I think that it was a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. You know, there are still obviously hardcore fans, but this was at heart a comedy. This was not. This was essentially a spoof of some of these like horror, paranormal things. And and it's you can play with something like that more than you can with something like um, Star Trek, which I think has a little bit more weight. You know, I think standard. if you did a Star Trek with an all-female cast in it, I think the nerds would, and in nerds, I'm I'm including pretty much everybody that I know. Uh, I think that it would come across as an obvious grab. Uh, I I don't think that it would come across as sincere. I feel well, also, that with I feel that with Ghostbusters, I feel that this came across as sincere. I came. I feel like it came across as these are real people. I think it, it could have worked with something else that has a smaller number. I mean, Star Trek is always, you know, a ship full of people, so it's really hard to do an all-female or all-male or all-anything cast, really. Um, the the It could have worked with a superhero film in theory, you know. Um, it's actually perfectly possible to do, for example, an X-Men film with an entirely female cast because the X-Men have had 943 members over the years, and it would be easy enough to cherry-pick all-female members and put them together as a team. Well, sure, um, and I would, la- I would absolutely love to see Birds of Prey done as a movie. Oh, that would be brilliant, yes. yes. I I think it, too, depends on the weight of the canon. Um, For instance, if if they gave us a female Doctor Who, and I know that's not a movie and I'm crossing into a different media, but if they gave us a female Doctor Who, I think that could be written in an equally acceptable way. I think it would depend on the previous canon. I think people would still freak out, though. Of course they're going to freak out, but everybody freaks out at change. They freak out this one, too. And Ghostbusters was originally a, it was a buddy flick. And and you had you know across the board a male gendered thing. Star Trek has always been inclusive uh, uh, culturally, gender uh, across the board, and and making it an all female or all male for that matter would be a, a violation of of the heart of the thing. I think by by taking Ghostbusters, which was you know in, in, in GB Prime, uh, was was a bro film, was a guy film, was all guys uh, uh, switching that. It to all women then is the same thing it's honoring the original franchise but looking at it from a different perspective i think you can get away with that very easily as demonstrated by the new ghostbusters movie well and i also like that they that uh in the original we got we got very little depth of character and in this one we got some real depth because in the yeah. original yeah. i kept wondering why they kept venkman around because all he was, was <laughs> all he was was obnoxious and smarmy and in this one, you get to see, okay, the motivations behind, you know, Aaron and Abby, and you get to see how that relationship works. And you don't sit there going, why do we have a token asshole in the group? Yeah, there, there was no token asshole. Nobody, nobody was a jerk. Like, you can understand why they would keep all of them around except Kevin. Uh, I was going to say Chris Helmsworth. Let's invoke that for a second. Yeah. You know, I have to admire the guy. He completely owned the role. He was hilarious in it. I loved his portrayal. The fact that he committed to it so deeply and was not afraid to act like a complete moron, I love him for it. But he was, he was also he was the so source of, of objectification, was he not? 
Yes. I mean, she was a source yeah. of objectification, Absolutely. and women have had to put up with yes. that since the birth of film. So yeah. why not? Why can't well, we, I ask are you we that as that. men so insecure that we can't handle them poking fun at that? I think that that right there is a social commentary on what has been done in the past, and it's a way of saying, okay, we recognize this, and there it is. Right. But they bonded over taking can we justify it? Can we use that? To, you know, is it is it right to try to justify it? I, I, that's what I wonder. Well, I think okay. But, almost, it, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, was he objectified to the same extent that um, the the woman playing the creature in the first film, the the thing that Zool is embodying, she that actress? I and for, I feel bad for not knowing her name, but. I mean, we. she's practically completely naked. She's covered with weird little bubble things. Um, we could argue that Dana is even objectified in certain ways. Mm-hmm. Is Kevin's character objectified to that same extent? He gets to keep his clothes on the whole time. So That's is true. it really as bad? I don't think so. And actually, her name was, was uh, Slavadza Joan. Okay. <laughs> Just in case you were wondering. <laughs> you know- Scott gets I the would cookie. even say if, uh, you know, with, with Zool, it, Zool herself was uh, kind of forward for her time. And granted, I agree with well, that was, clothing that was choices. Gozer, she was actually. not binary gender. She was very portrayed as not, you know, uh, necessarily fitting into one or one or the other gender. That's, that's perfect. true. Hey, Scott, yeah. well, that was Gozer, actually. Zool was, uh, Zool was, uh, oh, yeah. was yeah. Okay. Sigourney Weaver. Wasn't right. Zool, wasn't Gozer supposed to be um, Pee Wee Herman at one point? Paul Rubens. <laughs> oh, dear God. oh my God, that would have been oh, that would have that been would very have made different. It such a different movie. Yeah. yeah, I think it was either that or they had a uh, Evo Shandar was supposed to be in the film, and that's who they wanted to play. I, f- I forget which, but yeah, either way, it would have been a weird movie. Um, but I mean, st- still, I think that objectifying men is still it's it's kind of like and this is just this is some some elements of feminist theory will say that there's no such thing as sexism per se against men because you have to have power behind the denigration of the, the group that you're talking about. So the same as there it can't be reverse racism. There's not really a thing as reverse sexism. Now, that's a that's a controversial point. But. By that logic, we're not objectifying Kevin in the same way that women have been objectified for, you know. Well, centuries. I'll disagree with you. I mean, there's nothing else. It's, it's a nice commentary on was, it. I think that Kevin was objectified, but I think that the reason he was, object- was objectified was a statement about the objectification. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, and also, let's be fair, for a few laughs, because he was funny. Yeah. He also, was, in though, fact, freaking hilarious. Yes. <laughs> and it, I mean, this is still a comedy, you know. So. He was a big, strong man, though, and these four women had to protect him. I thought that was yes. a really interesting yes. bit of symbolism, too, because the fact that previously women are not usually the ones who protect the men, especially not a big, strong, muscular, strong, beautiful man like Chris Holmesworth. Well, I mean, they also had to protect him from the fish tank. They had to protect him from the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> they had to protect him from his own ineptitude. It was absolutely no use to him. It was, it was it was the one, and, and that's one of the things I liked about. I mean, it's actually one of the things I like about the franchise in general is that it's about smart people, and being big and strong does you absolutely no good in in the world of Ghostbusters, either of, of any gender. And the fact exactly. that Chris Hemsworth is big and strong doesn't help him because he's well, never going to box a rock. I I did like too that you've got Aaron as this very intelligent, capable person who is willing to do something as kind of gross as hire somebody just because they're hot, knowing he is completely incompetent. 
because women have been hired in similar positions just because they're hot and and been incapable of doing them for for quite some time that's the joke of your your dim bulb secretary and stuff so you know that was i thought that was great it was interesting that they also used him as a um, an anchor point for instead of pairing um, as a friendship. I mean, they go out there and they they're a little irritated that they have to save him, but you know they're like, "This is our friend. We can't leave him hanging." So it it wasn't even a uh, here we are with someone that you know that is you know my boyfriend or love interest. Yeah. Cool. Uh, before we wrap this up, I have one question for a brief answer from everybody. What do you expect from the sequel to this film? It's meant to have a girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Scott? Uh, I want anything other than a walking Statue of Liberty. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I want the stakes to be raised. Okay. How so? Just curious. I want there to be, I want there to be, you know, in order for it to be a good sequel, everything has to up the ante. You, I, I want there to be more danger. I want them to be, I want there to be more, I want, I want there to be higher danger for the characters. And I want to see them work their ways out of it. Fair enough. Christy, how about you? I, you know what? I just want the next one to kick ass in the same way that this one did. <laughs> That's all I want. <laughs> Okay, Dave. Uh, I I gotta echo Christy. I I I've long abandoned uh, assigning expectations because it only leads to misery and sadness. Uh, so I, I I hold out hope for awesomeness, uh, uh, even deeper character uh, uh, narratives uh, and and explorations of these remarkable individuals that they've that they've put before us in the first one. Beyond that. Uh, do your best, guys. How about you, Verge? I want to be Holtzman's girlfriend. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just would like to see the writing stay this strong. I feel like in this movie, they did a really good job of balancing the you know, ethos, pathos, and logos. I really would like to see that continue, and I want to explore the science a little deeper because I thought the science they introduced was really interesting. Cool. Finally, Keith. Uh, the one problem I had with the this movie was that unlike the first one, it was not a New York movie. It pretended to take place in New York, but there was nothing really specifically New York about it. Even though, and you've got a character whose specific thing is knowing the history of New York. They didn't do anything really with any of the actual lore of New York City, and it never felt like it was in New York, part because they didn't film there. But um, I'd like them to embrace that more. There's lots of stuff they can do that will make it, and you know, use this from actual New York history mixed in with, with the made-up stuff, uh, and, and, and take advantage of that aspect of Patty's character. Make that, make that a, big part, a bigger part of the story. And actually film the damn thing in New York. There's lots of cool stuff in our city. Damn it. Sorry, I'm a... I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a New Yorker, and I like that. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, yeah. Great. I mean, the, 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 there was a whole scene in the New York Public Library that was awesome. There needs to be stuff like that. So, yeah. Cool. Please tell well, thank you all for for being a part of this. I love when I could just sit back and let people have Hello? a conversation like this. I'm Who here, Jay. Hi. Hello. Hello. I think we lost oh, there you are. Sorry, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be cutting that out. Um, yeah. <laughs> Can I add one more thing? <laughs> right. Real quick. 
Okay. The, so, the, the one thing they did do in New York was that drive-by of all the landmarks, and you can't actually do that drive, like, logically at all. It made no sense geographically at all. It made me crazy. Anyway. Well, well, cool. Thank you all for coming here. I love these kind of conversations where I could just sit back and let brighter minds converse and share ideas. So uh, I want to go back through the group one last time very quickly. Where can we find you? Where can we buy your stuff? Dave, what are you up to? Quick. Uh, www.roundtablepodcast.com, www.vexmosaic.com, and underlibrum.com. Find me at all of those places. Otherwise, Google is your friend. Just Google me. You'll find me. Cool. Keith, hit me. Uh, go to decandido.net. That's D-E-C-A-N-D-I-D-O.net. It's a terribly, horribly out-of-date website, but it links to all the other places that aren't terribly, horribly out-of-date, like my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, my blog, and, and my rewatches and all that other good stuff. Cool. Christy, you're up. All right. You can see what I'm up to at garnetonwinter.com. And uh, from there, you can pretty much link to my Facebook and all that, all the projects I'm working on. Cool. Verge. Cool. Hi. You can find me in most uh, major booksellers um, online and some physical bookstores, depending on where you go. You can also find out more about me, my books, and my work at my website, virg-nelson.com. Kathleen, how about you? Yes, my website is kwtaylorwriter.com, um, and my books are available on Amazon and your favorite other places. <laughs> Finally, Mr. Scott Johnson. You can find me at creepylittlebastard.com, and I write horror, and you can also find me lurking under your bed at night. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and still the best URL ever. He, he's not kidding. He was my mentor for a few years. He's a scary <laughs> bastard. All right. Yeah, he hasn't kicked me out from under his bed yet. So, <laughs> but that's a topic for another podcast. Different conversation. <laughs> yeah. Thanks everybody for for downloading and streaming this. If you have any comments, any questions, if you just want to yell at us and do your man-child tantrums, please feel free to do so. We'll ignore you at our peril. Thanks again for listening, and take care. Radio Free Area is a production of 3015 North Studios, and is a fan production subject to the goodwill of Ghost Corp. This is Ivo Shandor, speaking from beyond the grave. Special gratitude to Sony Pictures Entertainment, Ghost Core, Ray Parker Jr., and Gozer the Gozerian. When someone asks you if you are a god, you say yes. What, are you stupid?